judge a person and it turns out you didn't have the whole story? Ever learn there was a lot more to that story than you first realized? I'm Kimberly. And I'm Rebecca. Join us as we separate the little lies from the big reputations. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. It is Pride Month. We are in the middle of Pride. Are are you being inundated by fake pride? Is your bank covered in rainbows? Yeah, I'm sure they all are. It's such performative nonsense. There's there's a bank in Union Square in New York that I remember last year we went to. So they had to get like a cashier's check and we were like right there and we walked in and there were little flags everywhere they have like lights on the ceiling that like reflect on the floor and usually they're blue and red they for the bank rainbow but they were rainbow like it was insane in there i was just like you guys are trying way too hard like the yeah. steps like they because this bank is ridiculous as it is and it had like steps to go up to to where like the cashiers were yeah yeah, yeah. and like they were rainbow like it felt like a really fun party but, but it was a so bank that just wants your money. Yeah, it was just like, what? This we, is I weird. Mean, we talked about that with Women's History Month. Oh, it's the yeah. same thing yeah. with more rainbows mm-hmm. now for Pride. But I just wish it was like more genuine. Yeah. Because you know, like July 1st, they're going to be like, get out of here. Exactly. <laughs> Throw all these rainbows out. It's just like a garbage can filled with like little rainbow flags. But like, we don't feel that way. Pride should be. Pride is always like Black History Month. Pride Black is History Month, Women's History Month, yeah. Pride. All of these should be year-round celebrations. Absolutely. Have you been to the Pride March ever in New York? I have not. I tend to be out of town most of the I went to Pride in Pittsburgh one year, mm-hmm. but it was just a coincidence because I was at a convention in Pittsburgh that weekend that they were celebrating Pride. So, um, And I didn't really go to it because mm-hmm. I was at a hotel that was a bit far away from it, but I saw the festivities and mm-hmm. such. So I've been a bunch of times, not in the last couple of years. It is, it is fun. It is really, the last time I do remember going was right after the pulse shooting. Oh, and they had this, uh, group that just came through and they were all wearing like white and had like angel wings and a whole, like there's, there's thousands of people there. Everyone got like, completely quiet as they walked by i probably would have cried it was really special it was really special because they had like a person there to like represent every person who had died and it was just like such a moment to be like hey we're here celebrating this thing but like don't forget one how we got here and how far like there still is to go because people are still being like murdered for just because someone doesn't like your shit but yeah anyway anyway it's usually a happier time but that i thought was like really Really nice. Yeah. It was a really nice moment. But no, I know my softball team is um they're going to Brooklyn Pride and and marching with that. But mm-hmm. I will again be out of town uh, for a wedding that weekend. I've never been. I've only been to the one in Manhattan. We should plan to go next year. Okay, we'll we'll do what we can. Yeah, I think usually it's like May finishes school and then June. I'm just like I need to fucking get out of here. <laughs> I've been stuck here forever. Yeah. No, this month June is busy. Like I'm not here. Speaking. A lot. Speaking of uh, being here forever, mm-hmm. Sean is here forever. Yay! <laughs> no, it's it is really good. He he retired from bartending. I'm so proud of him. He mm-hmm. really needed it. It's a long, long time coming. The service industry is 
it's awful. It's really, people are horrible. And oh, yeah. And it's people are horrible. And they're like, they're more horrible to people who like provide them meals and drinks, which seems weird. Yeah, right. Like you would be nicer to people who like have a hand in making your food, but and not always. Even when they are nice, it's just really draining, especially if it's not an industry you want to go into. And yeah. and it definitely wasn't for him. Like he is a musician. Mm-hmm. That is what he does. He's a and good musician too. In fact, if you like our theme song at the beginning of the episode, that's him. He mm-hmm. wrote that for us, right? And he wrote the intro music to um, my other podcast, Latinx Visions. He did an, a remixing adaptation. He put a box song to synthesizers for Why Do We Read This? Ooh. You know, so if you're out there and you need a little song or jingle for your podcast, yeah. like reach out to him. I will say existentially, he is much happier. He's in a much better place. And I'm so proud of him for finally making that move. But like, also, if you need some music, he can write it for you. He's 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 talented as fuck. So yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, not that I can take credit for it, but I'll thank thank you on his behalf. Right. But also like with our intro, I was, I gave very little like direction. I was like, I kind of want something that sounds like this and like that. Yeah. And I ended with like, and like he did. An amazing intro. It's it's literally the alarm that I wake up to. Oh, I love that. Because mm-hmm. oh. I really liked it. And I was like, You'll this have is to perfect. tell him that. I will. I'm telling him right now. Sean, are you listening? Sean, you know Sean's not listening. <laughs> he does all the music for it, but he doesn't go back and listen. I mean, wow. he uh, that's not hundred percent true because he does um the audio engineering for a podcast. So mm-hmm. that's also something if you're looking for, he can do he does like the final mixing for us. And so he does jump around and listen to little bits of it, but he mm-hmm. doesn't usually listen to the whole episode. He does make us sound better, I think. Um, he does. Yeah. He absolutely does. He's he's a magician uh, or a musician. Yeah. That, Same difference. Why why not both? Why not both? He's a magical musician. But, you know, he wrote a piano album during the pandemic. He's done film, film music. Mm-hmm. He's done music for music libraries. He, so he does a lot of audio engineering type stuff. Honestly, if you're in need of something like i'm i'm seriously like throwing out all the promos for him like not sponsored but also sponsored because he does yeah. that work for us for free uh, <laughs> but he does like really good work so it's not just like help my husband it's like also if you want something done really well like, yeah he's he's a great worker he yeah. um he recently did some podcast stuff for us at cuny mm-hmm. and um he's going to be working sort of long term with another podcaster but yeah but we could always use more more music in this house so if you're if you're into it reach out you can reach out to us or Mm -hmm. you can reach out to him i think he's seanprussell.com we'll tag him in something we'll do a little appreciation post on the ground yes if you just can't help you with anything oh that's he gets us all around on the train yeah but like you can't specifically request him i do I'm just kidding. <laughs> Excuse me, he's married. <laughs> like, can can Theo drive the uh, Q train this week, please? Because he's the only one I trust. <laughs> Aw. He, he probably never had him on the train. No, he doesn't do the Q train very often, does he? He's more I... like on the, the BDFM. He does letter trains, right? You said BDSM. I was like, what? <laughs> Isn't that funny what? that it is? <laughs> what has he been telling you? 
Um, yeah, he does all the letter trains. Yeah, because you it's like different training to be a letter train yes. driver and a number train driver. The trains, if you're in New York City or if you like to know about New York City transit, I gotcha. The letter trains are different trains from the number trains. The number trains are smaller. Because so. they used to be owned by different companies mm-hmm. when it was a privately owned thing. I, my students did podcasts for their final project, My People of New York class. Mm-hmm. And one of the groups did education, one did immigration, and one decided to do mobility and transportation. Mm-hmm. And one of the young women in my class went to the transit museum and learned about it. And she, born and raised in the Bronx... Mm-hmm. never knew that the MTA was originally owned by two private companies. Yeah. And and so she was really excited to learn about that. She mentioned that in her podcast episode. So I have still never been to that museum, but my husband gets in free. Oh, well, you should go. It's really cool. Yeah. I think every time I was supposed to go with a child, like something happened and we didn't get to go. Like it rained or like it, the museum was closed that day and we didn't know. But as we said at the beginning, it's pride. Happy pride. Yes. We are definitely covering an LGBTQIA plus icon this week. We are going to discuss the incomparable Marsha P. Johnson, a self-identified drag queen, LGBT activist, and for us, a New York City icon. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be covering her involvement in the Stonewall Uprising and the origins of Pride, as well as her involvement in drag troops and her time spent as a sex worker. Then we'll dig into her activism, including the formation of STAR, her involvement in ACT UP, and her AIDS advocacy work. After addressing her death, we'll talk a bit about her lasting legacy as an icon for the LGBTQIA plus community. In this episode, we will address Johnson as she, her, and exclusively use her chosen name. Now, trigger warnings, we will discuss transphobia, mention instances of rape and sexual assault, And cover some of the theories surrounding her death, which will include murder and suicide. Marsha P. Johnson was born August 24th, 1945 in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and died July 6th, 1992 in New York City. Her father worked for General Motors as an assembly line worker, and her mother was a housekeeper. She was the fifth of six siblings and came from a religious upbringing. In a 1992 interview, Johnson stated, I got married to Jesus Christ when I was 16 years old. She began wearing dresses when she was only five years old, but stopped for a while because she was bullied and harassed by boys in the neighborhood. In an interview shortly before her death, she also mentioned that she had been raped by a 13-year-old boy when she was young. She graduated from Edison High School in Elizabeth in 1963 and promptly left home to live in New York City. She left home with only $15 and a bag of clothes. She waited tables in Greenwich Village and began to hang out with street hustlers and sex workers near the Howard Johnson on 6th Avenue and 8th Street. It was around this time that she came out as what was at the time referred to as a transvestite. Marsha described herself as a gay person, a transvestite, and a drag queen. She used she, her pronouns and built her life around gay liberation, being a drag queen, and sex work. Initially, she went by the name Black Marsha. But later on, she took on the full name of Marsha P. Johnson. Her last name, fun fact, was inspired by the Howard Johnson restaurant that we just mentioned. And the P, as she often liked to inform people, stood for pay it no mind. (laughs) And this was something that she said a lot when she was asked about her gender and gender identity. There's actually one story where she was like in court for something. Some charges were being 
uh, brought up against her. And when the judge asked her what the P stood for, that's when she told him, pay it no mind. And apparently he just laughed it off and let her go without the charges. (laughs) Johnson also talks about how her mother, Alberta, once said that being homosexual was like being, quote, lower than a dog. But Marcia explains that her mother was not familiar with the LGBT community and believes that if she were, she would have felt differently. I mean, I feel like that's something you've you've you want to hold on to with your parent is this idea that they they would yeah. if they knew better they would they would accept they would do better yeah they would right. accept you yeah yeah and I feel like sometimes people they don't know until they're in that situation and then it's like oh. Well, I guess these people aren't so bad because now there's one in my family. Yeah, exactly. So maybe it just like took her family a little bit longer to come around. Um, Yeah, I mean, in the documentary, at least one of them, like her siblings, were still using male pronouns Mm -hmm. for Marsha. So it might be easier for some than others. Yeah. So Johnson also explained later on her mother encouraged her to find a billionaire boyfriend or husband to take care of her for life same (laughs) yeah sorry i you you didn't get that no you know what he's he's wealthy in love oh (laughs) so cheesy well johnson never married anyone besides jesus she often spoke about finding that billionaire husband Yeah. Marsha expressed herself through her appearance. She was an eccentric woman who was known for her extravagant hats and jewelry. Her outfits were put together with items that she found in thrift stores, gifts from friends, and items that she even found on the street. She was well known in the area for her crowns of fresh flowers that she created and wore. Yeah, and she even helped others who were like, oh, I want to dress like you and this and that. And she's like, girl, come with me to (laughs) the thrift store and I'll get you hooked up, right? Mm -hmm. Like she knew how to put things together. But she did have trouble finding stable work, and Johnson realized that the quickest way to earn some cash was to hustle. Being a sex worker was incredibly dangerous, uh, especially as a trans woman. Marsha was at risk of violence from strangers that she met up with in hotel rooms and cars. She had a gun pulled on her multiple times and was even shot once. Jesus. Shortly after arriving in New York at at the age of 17, she met Sylvia Rivera. Sylvia, a Puerto Rican trans woman who was just an 11-year-old child at the time, was also new to the city. The two became instant friends who looked out for one another. Marsha taught Sylvia many things and encouraged her to love herself and her identity. I mean, imagine that, 11 years old. I I don't even think I was taking the train by myself at 11. So I don't, I can't. Like, that's just starting like a whole new life. Like, in New York City, in 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 yeah. this in that time, like I can't imagine. It's it. a lot. Like I, I can't imagine it at all. Marsha actually spent a lot of time homeless. She would sleep wherever she could: hotel rooms, restaurants, movie theaters. Honestly, wherever she could find a place. She even spent time sleeping under the tables in the the flower shops, sort of in that area of New York. You the know, flower where, district. Yeah, the flower mm-hmm. district and everything. And this is where she was able to get a hold of the flowers that she used for her hair. Sometimes they would be like scraps that fell to mm-hmm. the ground. Sometimes she would just take them. Sometimes they would be gifted to her. I was going to go there to get flowers for the wedding. And then it just looked like really exhausting. Like I would have had to make like all the bouquets and all that stuff. And I was like, I'm just going to pay somebody to do this. This is too much. We just put daisies in mason jars. 
Oh, for yours, I was for like, mine. they would have mason jar. What are you talking about? But, uh, but no, that sounds nice. It was nice. Yeah. yeah. So from 1980 until her death in 1992, Johnson lived with a friend named Randy Wicker. One night, it was extremely cold out. She was invited to stay the night, and then she just never left. Yeah. I mean, and, and he was okay with that, mm-hmm. you know? He, he wanted her to have a place to stay. Now, we've mentioned the the different terms that Johnson used for herself. And the term transgender was not really common during Marsha's life. She self-identified, as we mentioned, as a gay person, a transvestite, and a drag queen. And while the documentaries have individuals who use her assigned birth pronouns, she used she, her pronouns for herself. Uh, Today, historians and many of her former friends describe her as a trans woman. And so that's a big part of why we decided to stick with the she, her pronouns Mm -hmm. throughout this episode. That's respectful, I feel like. So let's talk a little bit about Stonewall, where kind of it all erupted. It all, it all began there. Yeah. So for those of you that are not familiar with the Stonewall Riots, uh, here's a little bit of history. The Stonewall Inn is a bar located in Greenwich Village in New York City. It was and is known to be a safe place for the gay, lesbian, and transgender transgender communities. At the time of the uprising, Stonewall was barely legal, and its patrons were often those who were excluded from other places that didn't allow homosexual gatherings at the time. This included underage and unhoused individuals, people of color, and, of course, drag performers. In 1999, the Stonewall Inn building, Christopher Park, and nearby streets were added to the National Registry of Historic Places, and in 2000, the area was declared a National Historic Landmark. Fifteen years later, in 2015, the Stonewall Inn became the first New York City landmark to commemorate an LGBTQ icon. This inspired local residents to lobby for the area to be declared a national monument. On June 24th in 2016, President Barack Obama officially designated the area as the Stonewall National Monument. It became the first U.S. national monument designated for an LGBTQ historical site. It also became the first U.S. national monument with an officially maintained LGBTQIA plus flag. But the area wasn't always treated with such honor. Long before this, on June 28, 1969, police raided the Stonewall Inn. Why? Well, at the time, homosexual acts were illegal in 49 states, including New York. Illinois was actually the only exception. What's going on in Illinois? I don't know. Progress? I like it. Way to go, Chicago. This meant that bars and restaurants could be shut down if they were found to have gay employees or to be serving gay patrons. So how did gay bars like Stonewall stay open? Easy. They were operated by the mafia. I kind of like the idea that the mafia was like so open-minded. I mean, that would be nice, but I really think it was just about the money for them. Like they were less open-minded and more because, because not only did the mafia pay off the police to Mm -hmm. look the other way, they simultaneously blackmailed the wealthy patrons of these bars Never by mind. threatening to expose their homosexuality. So it was like, mm, pay us or. Never mind. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I mean, it, it would be cool if the mafia were progressive, but I don't think that was their jam. I, listen, I'm just thinking about Ray Liotta. <laughs> oh, Ray Liotta, RIP. I love Ray Liotta so much. Anyway, uh, and he's like glamorized the mafia for me. So I'm like. Maybe, maybe it wasn't that bad, but it's not the same. Everything's not good, fellas. No. There's no shine box here. 
Raids were not uncommon. The New York State Legislature specifically criminalized male homosexual cruising as a form of degenerate disorderly conduct, or degeneracy for short. <laughs> degeneracy for degeneracy short. Degeneracy for short. The raids usually ended in arrest or a beatdown from the cops. The beatdown was sometimes preferred as these men feared possible deeper consequences beyond having a rap sheet. These men feared that their families or their employers would learn that they were gay if word got out about their arrest. Yeah. But on the night of June 28th, 1969, the LGBT community put those fears aside and decided to fight the fuck back. Yes. This led to an era of resistance and revolution for the community. Now, there are contradictory reports as to whether Marsha was on site when the raid began or if she arrived later, but it's clear that she was there that night and on the front lines. One account claims that she started the uprising when she threw a shot glass at a mirror. Another states that she climbed a lamppost and dropped a heavy object onto a police car, which shattered the windshield. Yet another account was that she and fellow trans activist Sylvia Rivera, who we are definitely going to cover on another episode. Absolutely. The, uh, the two of them threw bottles and bricks at the cops. But in an interview years later, Johnson herself states that she didn't arrive on the scene until the uprising was well underway. Whatever her involvement in the initial uprising, Marsha and fellow trans women were particularly vocal about that evening. They figured they had nothing left to lose and everything to gain. They were fighting against the police, yes, but they were also fighting back against the oppression that they lived with on a daily basis. This oppression extended beyond the police, but the NYPD routinely targeted LGBT communities in the city. Queer people were routinely hassled and even arrested on questionable charges. Stonewall was the straw that broke the camel's back. So this night of the uprising was actually the second night in a row that police had raided the bar. And according to Johnson, the police had forced her and others out into the street to be frisked the previous night. And they had had enough, so they fought back. And as for the fires that were set during Stonewall, uh, it seems unclear who sent, set them. Like, it could have been the police. It could have mm. been the patrons. It could have been the mafia. Literally every source I found put the conversation about the fire in the passive voice. You know, the fires started or fires were set as, like, as if the damn thing started itself. Like, whoops fire it just happened like mm, i don't know like i just don't i just don't believe it and protests around the stonewall raids and they're sometimes referred to as riots or uprisings they lasted for six days now the first pride parades or marches were in honor of the anniversary of the stonewall uprising so Stonewall, as we just discussed, was a key moment in the LGBTQIA plus civil rights movement. And these marches solidified that. Today, we celebrate Pride in June in honor of the uprising done at Stonewall. The Christopher Street Liberation Day March of 1970 is considered New York City's first Pride March. Only three years after the first marches, the New York City Pride March, gay and lesbian organizers banned drag queens from participating because they thought it gave them a bad name. Now, this ban would have included Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. Mm -hmm. You know, like the women who were there when it all began. Yeah. Like, like fighting yeah. for rights in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They were actually banned from marching in the parade. So what did they do? And I love this. They marched in front of the parade. Mm -hmm. Like just right in front of that first banner. They're awesome. like, oh, here we go. They're like, we are leading this. Yeah, because 
think about it like pride as we know it would not exist if it weren't for women like Johnson and Rivera. Yeah. So it seems like incredibly disrespectful to be like, hey, you know, this thing that you guys kind of helped start. We're going to take it back from you. You don't need you here. Uh, like cis white men, gay or straight, doesn't matter. Like they wanted to be sort of in control. They're like, mm-hmm. it's kind of that mentality of like, well, let us get our rights first and you can be next. Yeah. Like fuck off with that. Yeah. Like just sit and wait your turn. Like, no, this is their turn. And they were the ones who initiated all mm-hmm. of this. So, and they were all fighting for the same thing. Exactly. So what, what was the issue? Anyway, besides anyway, the issue, probably the drag. <laughs> the issue. I was going to say the issue is what the issue always is, which is the patriarchy. Yeah. Ding, 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 ding. That patriarchy really is like the answer for all of the fucking problems. Yeah. Man. I mean, we're only in episode like, 21 usually, and we can't escape it. I don't think there's been an episode where we 22. haven't mentioned the patriarchy because it's, it's, it's a bullshit. constant problem. It's bullshit. Hmm. So besides possibly starting fires and, you know, the revolution, Marsha was pretty busy. She had her hands in a host of organizations looking to better the life for LGBTQI plus communities. One of the groups was called Hot Peaches, which I just love the name of that and it kind of makes you want peach cobbler. So they were a very popular international drag theater company that was based in New York City that Marsha began performing with in 1972. The troupe was founded by Jimmy Kamicha and they performed a play a week until the 1990s. Their performances have been described as political camp dominated by drag. Early performances centered around the fashion and outfits that the performers wore. The troupe was known for farcical romps, outrageous costumes and personalities, and gay political content. The shows explored issues affecting the gay community with an emphasis on issues faced by drag queens in particular. Now, one account by a fellow performer of the Hot Peaches suggests that the rehearsals were disorganized and a bit haphazard in general, but especially when Marsha was involved. She was something else. So she frequently arrived late, sometimes hours late, but always made an entrance, flashing her big smile and dressed in and dressed in her elaborate attire. Her outfits were often adorned with flowers, rhinestones, sequins, Christmas ornaments, and other found objects. She often forgot her lines and blocking and would improvise whatever came to mind at any given moment. But she had great comedic timing and this made her performance work. It was sometimes unclear if her stage persona was intentional or not. It's interesting, too, because, you know, our last episode, we covered Marilyn Monroe. Mm-hmm. We talked about her comedic timing and and also the idea of people confusing her stage persona with yeah. her with her real, with life, her real persona. life. And so but I think the line with with Marsha P. Johnson was a little more blurred mm-hmm. because she was very exuberant and exaggerated in her behaviors, even mm-hmm. beyond performance. But. Oh, yeah. I, I would have loved to see it. I, would have loved I wonder to see if it there's any uh, straight YouTubes with uh, some footage. There's like in one of the documentaries, uh, they have like clips of the footage, but mm-hmm. not full performances mm-hmm. that I found. Um, but yeah, I didn't dig super deep into YouTube because the, the documentaries I found gave gave a lot of information. Mm-hmm. But there was another troupe that Johnson was involved in. In 1973, she also performed with the Angels of Light drag troupe, and this time in the role of the Gypsy Queen in their production of The Enchanted Miracle. Now, Angels of Light was led by a gender-fluid individual who went by the name Hibiscus and their mother and sisters. 
Marsha was close enough with Hibiscus's sisters that she was like a second mother to them. Marsha's involvement with the group and her impromptu banter during the performance was almost always guaranteed to bring down the house. She was like a secret weapon for the Angels of Light. Hibiscus extended an open invitation to Marsha to join them anytime, and she would do just that. She would wander in off the street, jump, and jump on stage. Hibiscus tried writing for her, but eventually gave up because she always did her own thing. It, yeah, and even the clips that I did see, you just saw her going like, you could tell she was off book. She mm-hmm. was just doing her thing and the crowd loved it you yeah. know johnson also spent a lot of time as a sex worker in the documentary pay it no mind she claimed that she didn't have to have sex for money but she chose to just to see if she could get away with it and now this doesn't really necessarily line up with our knowledge of her overall experiences but this is the way she looked at things and if that helped her her see it uh in a more positive light that she made this choice then I say, why not? Yeah. She also stated that she liked the idea that people would be willing to pay for her body as though it was what gave it worth. I also think it's worth to note that there were like limited economic options for that were available for queer people at the time. Yeah. It wasn't illegal to fire people for being queer or simply to have an accusation of being queer. Sex work was probably a more steady form of income. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for anybody who's watched the, the series Pose, mm-hmm. some of which would have taken place uh, at the same time, time mm-hmm. you know, that was late 80s, early 90s. You know, you see a lot of that as well. It's sort of like at least consistent money. Yeah. Even if it's risky. Now, we talked about different ways for her to make money, but there were other people who were also making money off of her. One of the things that Johnson did was model, mm-hmm. right? In 1974, she was actually photographed by Andy Warhol as part of the Ladies and Gentlemen series he did. And this was a series of Polaroids featuring drag queens. I like that Andy Warhol is coming up again because he also did a portrait of Marilyn Monroe. And yeah. we talked about her last episode. Yeah. Well, interestingly, the Monroe portrait was more famous off the bat. Yeah. Whereas I think the Johnson portrait, because um, he he did the Polaroid series mm-hmm. of her, but he also later painted her. Yeah. That that didn't become a big deal until recent years. Well, I think because Marilyn was like already gone and was like already big because he painted that in the 70s, I want to say. Yeah. yeah. It's like he was already painting someone who was an icon, but like Marsha wasn't an icon yet. And she became one. So I wonder, right. like, how much, like, things sold for after people started to actually, like, see how awesome she was. Yeah. No, I think that's yeah. exactly what it was. I, I totally agree. Warhol featured her in 1975. He featured Johnson in a screen print portfolio that he was making of drag queens and trans people at a nightclub called The Gilded Grape. What a ridiculous name for a nightclub. The Gilded Grape. Yeah. The screen print went on display in Greenwich Village, which, like, us New Yorkers just call the village. Um, when Marsha went to the store to check it out with some friends, the store owners threw her out. So she was good enough to be the subject of a Warhol piece that's literally in your store, but, like, not good enough to be in there. It's not surprising, though, right? Yeah. Because 
Because rich people are going to be rich people. I just don't know why. I I think there's like a trope. Like I'm thinking of like movies that you've seen in like the 80s and 90s where like some eccentric person comes in and like the snooty like rich people are just like, oh, we can't have this. Please get out of our store. You're going to. That's what this sounds like. 100%, it does. Right? right. Like, like, is it like I can picture this dude with like a broom shooing her out of the store with her and like some flower get up just like dramatically dressed well, gorgeousness and he's just like no you're probably up to no good even though you're just dressed differently that's the thing that infuriates me is that rich people like this in art forms they mm-hmm. like it in theory but the minute you're real and in front of them yeah it becomes a whole different story and and that's literally what's mm. happening here right well i feel like it's a it's nice to look at when it's quiet and can't interact with me but the second it can have an opinion and it's in my face now it's a problem yeah and marcia was definitely the kind of person who would be in your face oh yeah so let's dig a little bit into the truth let's move beyond the big reputation johnson was one of the original gay rights activists Following the events at Stonewall, Johnson became a founding member of the Gay Liberation Front. She was part of the Drag Queen Caucus of the GLF, and she was also part of raising money for Pride. But along with fighting for gay rights and against social norms and the police, Johnson was also fighting her own demons. She suffered from mental illnesses, dealt with breakdowns, was arrested, and even spent time in psychiatric hospitals. Sometimes these trips would last for months at a time, and when she would return to the city and the street, she was acting differently. Friends said that it was from the drugs that the hospital gave her as an inpatient, but that she would return to herself within a few days or weeks, depending depending on how heavily they drugged her, I guess. Yeah. That's kind of crazy to think about. Yeah. Like they would just like put you out onto the streets. I mean, if you think about it, like, in their mind, they probably were like, oh, now we're giving you the amount of medication to make you, quote unquote, normal or yeah. socially acceptable. Well, I, but like, did they give you a prescription? Did they follow up with you? I mean, they don't do that now. So no, no. I don't even know what I'm talking about. Uh, but Johnson, like, understood how important it was to have friends look out for you, especially when you're spending time on the streets. So much so that her and Sylvia started STAR. It stood for Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries. And it was an organization that they founded in the 1970s. It was a gay, gender nonconforming, and transvestite street activist organization and a radical political collective. Basically, Sylvia came to Marsha with the idea. She wanted to help protect trans people who were living on the street by providing them with a safe place to stay. She asked Marsha to help her create this space, basically a place where they could not only feel safe, but where they could unite and organize to fight for their rights. Sylvia actually asked Marsha to be president of it, but Mm -hmm. she said that Marsha said that they needed someone who had a little more of a linear thinking process than she herself had. And Mm -hmm. so she was more like the VP. Oh, I like that. So the Star House was established in 1972. It provided housing and support to LGBT youth and sex workers in lower Manhattan. Johnson and Rivera served as the house mothers and were able to fund most of the rent and what they did with the organization through sex work. The first star house location was actually the back of an abandoned truck in the, in the village. Each night, Marsha and Sylvia would hustle in the streets to make sure that the over 20 young people living in the truck would have something to eat in the morning. 
Can you just imagine 20 people in a truck? Yeah. How big do you think this truck was? I don't think it was big. I'm thinking like a standard size U-Haul. Yeah, I'm not it's I don't think it was like an 18-wheeler type. Yeah, like just truck a bed. a small but bigger one. Bigger than a bread truck? Bigger than a bread truck? <laughs> what are you? What are you in the 20s? What the hell's a bread truck? You know what the hell do you mean? What's a bread truck? When the bread companies go to the grocery store and they like bring the fucking Thomas's English muffins, it's like a bread truck. Okay, I guess. I'm not guess. making this up. This isn't a 1920s thing. I, it sounded like you were like little orphan <laughs> Hanny chasing a bread truck. Do you know that we have like, side note, totally unrelated. Mm-hmm. We have, I haven't seen them in a few years actually, but there's this truck that goes around our neighborhood and it has like a little like bell that kind of reminds me of an ice cream truck, mm-hmm. but it's for a guy who does knife sharpening. <laughs> That's like the most Park Slope thing I've ever heard. And the first time I saw it, I was really scared. I was like, yeah. I feel like that's how you get murdered. Bring out your knife like, with the <laughs> knife that you brought. He sharpens it and then he stabs you with it. It's so scary. That is sketch. But you know who would like that? Park Slope. <laughs> My husband oh, okay. would actually be very into this like knife sharpening service that just travels around. My husband is way bougier than that. He's like, no, we must bring it to... Uh, what is the knife place down in Tribeca? Remember? Oh, yeah. It was across the street from the pen store. Like yeah. the pen doctor. Yeah. What's all these bougie ass places and their weird things? Yeah, but that's where we go to get our knives sharpened. Jeez. Mm-hmm. You yeah. should get a knife we're sharpening those people. kit. <laughs> we, we have a knife sharpening kit. Oh, no, no. Sharpening no. Kit. He wants like, this like a special, I don't, you know, Sean, he's extra. Well, I love Theo's him. got like a thing, like a, a kit. Like he sits there and then he like sharpens it and then he'll take like a piece of paper and like cut it like he's like watching american horror story while he does it he's like no it's creepier because he's just like sitting there with nothing (laughs) just sharpening knives why do we have creepy slash bougie husbands i don't know (laughs) anyway bread truck yeah (laughs) maybe it was the size of a bread truck so the story goes that one morning when Marsha and Sylvia were returning to the truck after a night of hustling, it was actually pulling away with the star resident still sleeping inside. Apparently, the people woke up and were literally like jumping out of the back of the truck. You know, apparently this truck was not actually as abandoned as they first thought. That's so fun. Imagine you come back to your bread truck and you're just like, what? <laughs> it's like, now a bread truck. It's you don't even check truck. the back. You're just like, all right, let me take my bread truck. I've got to go pick up the bread to go make the deliveries. <laughs> and you start driving. And all of a sudden you're like, what's that noise? Are there people jumping out of the back of my bread truck? Just confused. So confused. Yeah. Very, That's very hysterical. Confused. Yeah. So this is when the two of them were like, we need to get like a real home because this bread truck's not going to work. That's not what they <laughs> I say. I love how it's a bread truck It's now. a bread truck now. So they needed to get a real home for all these individuals. So they rented a rundown building that didn't have any electricity or running water. But they were able to fix up the building as best as they could. And they were able to pay rent for only about eight months. When they can no longer pay rent, they were evicted. No, but seriously, like, the audacity of that landlord to collect money on a building yeah. with no running water or electricity mm-hmm. and then still kick them out. Like, who are you going to get to move in there instead? Nobody. But you leave it empty and 
And then you complain that it's empty. I mean, has the New York real estate market really changed? No, I mean, it's probably gotten worse. It's it's awful. Anyway, Marsha was a mentor and a drag mother to queer youth who needed care. And this care wasn't limited to young drag performers, but she extended it to those who were not performers as well. So unfortunately, Star closed in 1973. It only lasted for about four years, but its impact had been felt by many in that short time. It was and is considered a groundbreaking and revolutionary organization in the queer liberation movement, which has served as a model for other similar organizations. Even after the house closed, Star served as a safe haven for people who never really had a home. And as the gay liberation movement became increasingly more white, middle class, and cisgender, Johnson, Rivera, and Starr were there to serve as a reminder that trans and gender nonconforming people still existed and also deserved equal rights. Johnson was an AIDS activist and an early member of ACT UP. Like, of course she was. Like, she's such a fucking helper. Yeah. (laughs) She participated in the organization as a marshal and organizer from the time of its inception in 1987 to the time of her death in 1992. ACT UP stands for AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power and is an international grassroots organization working to end the AIDS pandemic. Members work to improve the lives of people living with AIDS through direct action, medical research, treatment and advocacy, and working to change legislation and public policies. According to their website, ACT UP was formed in response to social neglect, government negligence, and the complacency of the medical establishment during the 1980s. Soon it found itself needing to fight corporate greed, lack of solidarity, and various forms of stigma and discrimination at home and abroad. So as we can see, it moved beyond just an AIDS coalition. However, on their website, they emphasize that HIV AIDS is not history. HIV AIDS is very much with us Mm -hmm. and eradicating the virus is still very much at the core of their mission. Johnson herself tested positive for HIV in 1990. She spoke about this publicly and told people that she hoped that they would not be afraid of those with the disease. She herself spent time with those who had had the virus when others would not go see them in hospitals. In one of the documentaries that we watched, Pay It No Mind, she says, stand close to those with AIDS. Let them know you're there for them. Marsha was known through the village as St. Marsha. Many people admired her ability to be true to herself, and she was known for being generous and kind. She would give people the clothes off her back or get them some food, even if she herself had very little. She may have been popular, but she was also often excluded, and she lived a life of poverty and in danger. She claimed to have been arrested over a hundred times. And while she believed that no one should have to live on the streets or hustle to get by, it was really the only way she knew how to survive as herself. On July 6, 1992, at the age of 46, Marsha's body was found floating in the Hudson River. Police ruled her death as a suicide, but Marsha's friends and those who knew her disagreed. They believed that it was more likely true that Marsha had been the victim of an attack. Trans women, and particularly trans women of color, were, and honestly still are, mm-hmm. frequent targets of hate crimes. The queer community were enraged that police did not bother to investigate Johnson's death. At her funeral, hundreds of people showed up, and the church where it was being held was filled to capacity, and much of the crowd never made it inside. There are many theories surrounding her death, including suicide, an accident, a pickup gone wrong, dirty cop, the mob, but no answer was clear on how she died. All that is known is that she was last seen on the 4th of July and her body was discovered two days later in the river. In 2012, the NYPD agreed to reopen the case involving Marsha's death, but unfortunately the case remains unsolved. 
While there was no indication of impact wounds or trauma to the head, it's still unclear how she ended up in the river that night. When we talk about the impact that Johnson had, you know, on her community, on the world, I want to start out with this question that was posed by author Charlene A. Carruthers in her book, Unapologetic, A Black, Queer, and Feminist Mandate for Radical Movements. She says, what would be possible if black children were taught that Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera were among the founders of the LGBTQ rights movement in the United States? I mean, Johnson is a legend for some, but Mm -hmm. is, as Carruthers puts it, not only kept out of the collective memory of the black radical tradition, Mm -hmm. but also marginalized within the mainstream gay rights community, the LGBTQ movement today. Oh, absolutely. But, like, do you think she meant, like, you know how we learn about, like, Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks? Like, yeah, Marsha should be, like, up there with them as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's what she's going for, and I I absolutely agree, you know? Well, I don't think that... I know, at least when I was in high school, we didn't really learn about LGBTQ leaders. Like, I didn't learn about, like, Harvey Milk until college. I mean, in some states, they can't even say the word gay. True. So, So, where are we at? For those that knew her or knew her story, she's an icon. She's a rebel who sparked a movement. We're not there yet, but we've made progress. And if it weren't for folks like Johnson and Rivera, we wouldn't even be where we are today in terms of LGBTQIA plus rights. What was it that Johnson was quoted as saying after the, St- the Stonewall uprising? Darling, I want my gay rights now. I think it's about time the gay brothers and sisters got their rights, especially the women. And another personal favorite, no pride for some of us without liberation for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. So the uprising at Stonewall was a catalyst for the generation of LGBTQ activists to stand up and fight back. Marsha attended rallies, sit-ins, meetings with the Gay Liberation Front, and she was very vocal about her frustrations on gay men and lesbians dominating the conversation for the community. She questioned where trans people fit into the conversation and made sure that she was a voice for them. Marsha P. Johnson is one of the faces of the queer revolution. If it weren't for her and others like Sylvia Rivera, again, definitely covering her in the future, the movement would not have advanced when and how it did. Mm -hmm. At the time of the uprising, Marsha was 23 years old. Think about that. 23. Again, I... What were you doing at 23? I was like drinking Long Island iced teas. I mean, she might have been having some too. She probably drank classier shit than that. But maybe uh, not. I maybe not. I, Long Island iced teas are very classy. They're from Long Island. Yeah. <clears throat> because of Johnson's actions and advocacy, the U.S. saw the beginnings of the gay movement in the 1960s, and the uprising generated the first gay pride marches across the country in 1970. In 1995, transgender educators and activists Rusty Maymore and Chelsea Goodwin created Transy House. This was inspired by Star House and served as a shelter for trans folks in need of shelter until 2008. It is now a private home. Uh, fun fact, this is in my neighborhood. When I was doing research on it, like it came up in something I was reading. And I was like, oh, let me Google that. And I pulled it up in the first picture that popped up. And I was like, Oh, that's definitely in my neighborhood. You're like, this looks familiar. This is definitely in my neighborhood. And yeah, it it's, you know, only a, a, I mean, 
It's a few blocks away, but it's definitely Park Slope. Stop giving out your location. I the mean, man with the knives is going to come. <laughs> We've said that I live in Park Slope now since like the introductory episode. I think that's fine. <laughs> we should just randomly say you moved. I don't want to move. No, but like we'll just say it. Transy House was a safe haven for trans and gender non-conforming people. As many as 13 people were housed there at any given time, which kind of makes me wonder if they like sold the house or if they were forced out because it's in a private residential area in Park Slope. And everybody nearby was probably like, what is this? Yeah. No, thanks. Get out of here, transients. I'm so sure. Because again, I think we're dealing with like... Rich people who feel entitled yep. to like have things the way that they want. Although it. Park Slope wasn't a super bougie neighborhood. Well, I guess maybe by the nineties it was. By the nineties it yeah. was, yeah. But I know it wasn't initially. Mm. So the individuals who stayed here were individuals who had no other place to go after being kicked out of their homes or dropping out of school or even being refused housing at the city shelters because they were trans. Because that's a thing. Which like. Oh, who needs help the most? Oh, but not you. Because I don't like the things that you're into. So I don't plan on helping you. But like, I'll help anybody else. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, these people were the ones who were like, hey, we'll stay in a shelter because like, we need the help. Mm -hmm. No, not you. Go, go be weird somewhere else. Because like, that's what they thought. These people were just like weirdos. Yeah. So Sylvia Rivera ended up living there at the Transy House. From 1997 until her death in 2002, she found support unlike any other that she encountered up until that point, especially in regards to her advocacy work. People in the house referred to her as Ma Sylvia. I love that. I mean, because she was. She was like the mother of Mm -hmm. gay and trans rights. I wonder like how many people like heard about her and was like, I'm going to come to the city. I can do what she did. You know, like how many people she actually inspired yeah, I mean, it, I think word of mouth outside of the city was a little different at that time. Yeah, but it wasn't like social media and stuff. But people still heard of Stonewall. Like they, Absolutely. they knew. I mean, they probably like, I think it was it was like, you know, like San Francisco at the time. Like if you were gay or transgender and you lived in like one of these towns that like just fucking hated you, you flocked to these cities right. that had these big populations. Exactly. Yeah. So there's also... Um, a monument featuring George Segal's sculpture, which is entitled Gay Liberation. And this is located in Christopher Park, which is along Christopher Street mm-hmm. in the West Village in New York City. So it was completed in 1980 and was the first piece of public art dedicated to gay rights. It serves to commemorate the ongoing struggles of the LGBTQIA community and individuals within that community. So it features two pairs of life-size individuals. One couple, two men, are standing up while the other couple, two women, are seated on the bench. The sculpture is made of bronze that, is then, that was then painted white. The monument was commissioned in 1979 on the 10th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprisings, and it was completed in 1980. However, it was not dedicated until June 23, 1992, which was only two weeks before Marsha's death. In an interview shortly before her death, Johnson was critical of the statues because, as she says, thousands died. And what did we get in return? A couple of statues in a park. Yeah. I mean, she's not wrong, though. She's not wrong. 
She Built NYC is a project that aims to bring diversity to statues in New York City. Compared to over 150 statues of historical men, there are only six statues dedicated to historical women. You've got Joan of Arc, Golda Meir, Gutrud Stein, Eleanor Roosevelt, Harriet Tubman, and some of the women's rights pioneers, Sojourner Truth, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Susan B. Anthony. The addition of a statue with Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera would not only increase that number, but would diversify the statues in the city to better represent the LGBTQIA community. The statue of Johnson and Rivera was scheduled to be constructed in 2020, but was put on hold due to COVID. That doesn't seem like a good reason, because there were like buildings that went up during COVID. Construction didn't really stop on things. So, like, I call kind of bullshit on that. I mean... Like, I feel like that's, like, a the funding I, ran out situation. Possible, but I think it, uh, this happened with a lot of statues in this project at that time. So, in the meantime, activists have constructed a bust of Johnson that they placed in Christopher Park. There's no word if it was still there since it didn't receive an official permit at the time that it was put up. In 2020, New York State renamed East River State Park in Brooklyn after Johnson. This one's in my neighborhood. See? I spent a lot of time there during COVID because what do you do? Yeah. You just walk to the water and you hang out. The Marsha P. Johnson State Park is a seven-acre waterfront park located in Williamsburg. This is also where they host Smorgasburg in the summers. Have you ever been there? No, I think uh, Prospect Park has a version of they that. They do. But they got it from Williamsburg. Yeah. I mean, anyway. Anyway. Obviously. It's, it's expensive. Like, there's like a thousand things, but like you can only afford two. Whatever. Mm-hmm. So the park is free and open to the public. It's got really great views of the water and it's got lots of grassy, loungy spots. And honestly, I think that she would like this park. I hope so. Yeah. All right. So final thoughts, takeaways. What do you got for us? So I feel like Marsha was amazing. Like she was truly fighting the good fight. Like it takes a lot to stand up for yourself in a world like like this gestures yeah. around wildly. <laughs> I think because she was so strong that she was it was so easy for her to inspire others. Like just in 2021, last year, New York State introduced a bill making New York City a safe haven. Um, the assembly member, Harry Bronson, I don't really know who he is, but I appreciate him and I want to learn more about him. He said, as a society, we must recognize the dignity and humanity inherent within others, especially in our trans youth. Our trans safe haven legislation will send a strong message that the LGBTQ plus rights will always be protected in the empire state. I feel like Marsha absolutely inspired this and a way of thinking in New York City. Also, on maybe like a little bit of a negative note, there's a guy named Ted McGuire in one of the documentaries in the uh, the death and life of Marsha P. Johnson that he points out. He's a community advocate and he makes a really good point. He points out how when the fight was for marriage equality, everyone was there. All the gays, everyone showed up. But as trans women are being killed, it's not the same. Those people with privilege have moved on and this is no longer their fight. They're not showing up with the same energy. They're not showing up at all. That's the thing that the community really needs to, like, take a look at themselves and, like, ask. Like, why why don't you have that same energy? Why have you just, like, taken your, your rights and, and gone home and you're just enjoying your privilege? But meanwhile, like, your brothers and sisters are are not doing as well as you are. Right. Like, the battle should be for everyone. I completely agree. I, I want... 
I want a feature film on yes. Marsha P. Johnson. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned Harvey Milk before. So like think milk, but instead of a cis white male, like have a trans black woman at the forefront of the film. Like I'd heard of Marsha before yeah. we did this episode. And I had a rough idea of her involvement in Stonewall, but like there was so much more that I was unaware of. Yeah, no, me too. So much of her her activism and her advocacy, you know, and I think this sort of thing needs to be taught more widely. Like Absolutely. if not in schools, at least through film where people can have access to it. Mm-hmm. So before we wrap up, we want to share a couple of resources and references with you. The first is a documentary called Pay It No Mind, The Life and Times of Marsha P. Johnson. And I found this documentary on YouTube. It, it includes segments with an interview with Johnson. And that interview was actually recorded only four days before her death in 1992. So it's like very up to the minute. Mm-hmm. So there's a, another documentary on Netflix called The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson. Um, there's also Women and the American Story, Life Story, Marsha P. Johnson, 1945 to 1992 by the New York Historical Society Museum and Library. And if you're in New York, the Kellen Lord Community Health Center has some great resources, including transgender-specific community resources. And if you're not in New York or you just want to learn more, you can visit their website at kellen-lord.org. We'll also link a PDF on trans-specific resources, including the Trans Lifeline, which you can also reach at 877-565-8860 from anywhere in the U.S. So what did you think? Let us know. Do you have any suggestions of trans women that we should cover in the future? Follow the podcast on Twitter at Big Rep Pod and Instagram and TikTok at Big Reputations Pod. Send us a message or email us at BigReputationsPod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends, your family, and your chosen family. Subscribe and leave a five-star review. Grab some merch. Our wonderful logo designer, Samantha Marmalejo, has the logo up on her Redbubble site, so you can order a variety of items from stickers to t-shirts to mugs and more. Be sure to check out the link in the show notes and take a pic with your merch. Tag us. Let us know. Let's wrap this up. What quote do you have for us this week? So it's from Marsha. No pride for some of us without liberation for all of us. Absolutely. And as always, believe women. <laughs>